News Power Hour. Yeah, welcome to the Biz News Power Hour this Tuesday, the 14th of September. I'm coming to you uh, here from Johannesburg. It's Alec Hogg in our virtual studio, Stuart Lerman, Nadia Swart, and Justin Rowe Roberts. Well, we've got a packed show coming for you, but taking the highlight position is Pete Mouton, the chief executive of the PSG Group. This is the organization that helped to begin Companies like Capitec Bank, in which they uh, used to have a huge shareholding, which was then unbundled to shareholders. Curo, uh, a number of other pioneer foods. They are a a, a major player in the South African play, uh, marketplace. And Pitt's father, Yanni Machon, was always a straight shooter, uh, pretty outspoken from time to time. Anyway, today Pitt has followed in his father's footsteps, and he has... Uh, called a spade a spade, uh, putting together an open letter which says essentially that he believes that mandatory vaccines are a good thing. Uh, we have uh, a lengthy conversation with him coming up, uh, also some input from the Tuesday evening co-host Stephen Nathan, plus we'll get the riposte, if you like, uh, from Matthew Kruger from the Helen Sussman Foundation who says that uh, mandatory vaccines are not constitutional. Fascinating stories coming up for you tonight. But uh, first up, Stuart, let's find out uh, what is being read by our audience on biznews.com. Thanks, Alec. The conversation you had yesterday with um, Johan van Lockenberg and Victoria Hollingsworth on the British American tobacco corruption is being very well received on the .com uh, site. The piece Nadia did uh, from her to Spies, again, looking at the constitutionality around um, mandatory vaccines has also been well read. And then a piece from our partners at the Wall Street Journal on Facebook censorship and how it's uh, at varying levels for different levels of society, if you'd like to look at it like that. That's also been very well received on the dot-com platform. Well, it's rather appropriate, that last story, because, uh, Nadia, uh, no fresh Biz News videos on YouTube for a week. What's the story there? No, not for the next week. We've been suspended because one of the videos were flagged as violating community guidelines. So it's what happens. They have their their policy and we broke it. So for a week, our videos will be on Vimeo. All new videos. So that's the Biz News. Uh, you just look for Biz News biz on news Vimeo. Business TV. Yes. And in a week's time, we'll be back and we'll make sure that we don't deviate from the guidelines that uh, YouTube give us. Because it's, uh, it's, it's hard to do that when you're doing live interviews and somebody says something that uh, YouTube doesn't like. But anyway, we know, we know what to avoid next time around. What are the community watching though on, uh, of our videos at the moment? So the flash briefing from yesterday is doing very well. It covered the Pfizer approval for vaccines from 12 and up. And on Vimeo, there's quite a few interviews that are nice to look at. Some old ones from the archive and an interview that I did with uh, Dr. Herman Yedling. And then there'll be a whole bunch of new ones put on Vimeo in the next couple of days. Uh, Stuart, from your perspective, the podcasts, uh, what is being listened to? The Treasury one of Currency Focus uh, done yesterday, Alec, has been very well listened to on Spotify. Um, the Business Power Hour from last night as well in the top three. And then your interview with Jason McCormick looking at the new uh, property development in Mamelodi has also been well listened to. It's a nice one, that, because it is a good news story. Here we are two months after the riots and the McCormick Group, which were the hardest hit of all the property developers, are starting another new Greenfields property. So if you haven't listened to that interview yet, well worth going there for a little flip on your day. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Okay, let's kick off with the news headlines and Nadia Swat has them for us. Businesses and insurers are appealing to the government to work faster in paying out for damages sustained during the July riots, saying that many are desperate for cash to get their operations back up and running. While the state, through its insurer, SASRA, has enough funding to pay out, with so many claims it does not have the capacity to address them quickly. The insurance industry has suggested that 30% of each claim be paid out immediately, 
so big businesses at least have some capital to restart while Sosware processes everything. This would mitigate long-term losses and help retain jobs. The head of South Africa's state power utility needs to substantially reduce its 402 billion rand of debt to realize his vision of transforming the coal-addicted behemoth into a leading green energy producer and create as many as 300,000 jobs in the process. ESCOM supplies more than 90% of the nation's electricity, the bulk of it from coal, and emits more than two-fifths of the nation's greenhouse gases. CEO Andre Dureta wants to tap concessional loans from development finance institutions to finance renewable plants in exchange for accelerating the closure of some of its old polluting power stations. The ANC says that the elections should be run fair and square and that parties shouldn't benefit just because they could muscle out their opponents. The party responded to the DA's court bid to block the IEC from reopening candidate registrations for the upcoming elections. The ANC said that the DA's request is at odds with the Constitutional Court's ruling, which gave the IEC room to change the pre-election timetable and is also at odds with the spirit of giving voters the freedom to choose their elected officials. The ANC also said that the, the DA's court bid is prejudiced as the party's leadership had already publicly accused the Constitutional Court of foul play, alleging that it had leaked information to the ANC. Well, Justin, let's find out what's going on on the markets today. Our Justin Rowe Roberts keeps a very close watch on the JSE and other uh, international markets. What gives? The JSE All Share Index was up at 64,500. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 25 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 79 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 85 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,792 an ounce. Kruger Rand will cost you around 27,000 Rand. Brent crude is up at $74.30 a barrel. And Bitcoin is also up, trading around the 660,000 Rand levels. In the financial news, Steinoff has raised 7.3 billion Rand through a book board of PEPCO shares that forms part of its recently approved settlement process at a 9% discount. The placement of 370 million shares represents 9.9% of PEPCO shares, with the book build set to bring Steinoff stake in SA's largest non-grocery retailer to about 50.1% from 68.2%. Steinoff, which almost collapsed in South Africa's biggest accounting fraud, faced more than 100 legal claims with more than 130 billion rand from shareholders who said they were duped into buying a worthless stock through misleading information. The company's value plunged by almost 200 billion rand after the fraud was exposed in December 2017. PSG CEO Pete Mouton, whose investment company has developed some of SA's biggest corporate successes, such as Capitec, has called for the imposition of mandatory vaccinations, a step he said was necessary for the battered SA economy to open up. In an open letter on Monday, he said people who choose not to be vaccinated should be denied entry to restaurants, public parks, shopping centers, airports, businesses, and educational institutions. While the use of vaccine passports has been controversial globally, Momentum has been growing locally for its use. It's an interesting story that, and uh, well, it will give us some more insights coming up in just a little while. But I'm sure there's going to be just as many people on the other side of the fence, as we well know at BizNews, there's two sides to every argument. And in, in this one, it seems to be 14 sides, doesn't it, Justin? It's incredible that you just can't get any equanimity on it. Agree, Alec. There are so many different factors at play, but just from a pure economic perspective, I think Pitt has a rational perspective on this one. It appears so. You've got to somehow start getting back to normality. And as the UK is showing us uh, with the way that life now includes being able to go to football matches again, as we see from our television sets, it does appear as though vaccines are going to be the way forward in that respect. This market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, September 14th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Chinese police are monitoring citizens who read overseas financial news sites, and the CEO of the right-wing social media app Parler has plans to grow his user base. We'll also talk about the youthful politician in Brazil who's challenging the political giants in the race to be president. Plus, energy companies are gobbling up biofuels like soybean oil because they have to be greener. It's causing headaches for other industries, though. 
They've seen their input prices triple, and they have members like Krispy Kreme and smaller bakers who are worried they just might not be able to find oil when they go out into the market. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. China has an anti-fraud app that's been installed on more than 200 million phones. It's meant to block suspicious phone calls and to report malware. But the FT has found that Chinese police are using the app to monitor people who have been on international financial news websites. One user in Shanghai told the FT he had been summoned by authorities after visiting a U.S. news service. He says police asked him whether he had contacts abroad and if he regularly read overseas financial websites. And Chinese citizens often can't opt out of the security app. Parents say they have to download it before enrolling their children in school. And in the city of Shenzhen, some tenants have to install it before signing leases. Chinese officials did not respond to a request by the FT for comment. Brazil's first openly gay state governor could become the country's next president. 36-year-old Eduardo Leite is from the center-right Brazilian Social Democratic Party. He's challenging the two giants of Brazil's politics in next year's election. And Leite is described as the dream candidate of the liberal economic elite. To talk more about this, I'm joined now by our Latin America editor, Michael Stott. Hey, Michael. Hello, Mark. So, Michael, tell us a little bit more about Eduardo Leite. Why is he seen as so appealing to Brazil's liberal economic elite? Well, Mark, the the main reason is because they're desperate for an alternative to the two most likely main candidates for next year's election. That's former President Lula on the left and the current president, the far-right Bolsonaro. Neither of them is particularly appealing to a lot of the economic elite and to Brazilians in the center. And so they're casting around to see whether there's somebody that might be able to challenge those two. So, you know, aside from not being Lula or Bolsonaro, what does uh, Leite bring to the table in terms of economic policies? Well, this is an interesting one because you might imagine that Brazil, having suffered very badly in the pandemic with the world's second highest toll of, of dead, 585,000 so far, uh, would be looking for somebody with a lot of sort of leftist social policies. But Leite thinks that, in fact, what Brazil wants is economic reform and is somebody who can deliver on the agenda that Bolsonaro didn't deliver on, which was privatization, slimming the state, making the state more efficient uh, and attracting foreign investment. And that's the program he's laying out. It's one that clearly appeals to business, would appeal to foreign investors. Um, The question is whether that can appeal more broadly to enough Brazilians for him to get into a second round against Lula. Okay, but realistically, what are his chances, um, especially as as being a gay man in a predominantly Catholic country? Although the country has an openly homophobic president in Bolsonaro who has boasted of his antipathy towards gay people, in fact, most Brazilians are fairly tolerant. The main problem Leche has is the polarization of Brazilian politics. So like a lot of countries today, social media and the increasing sort of tensions of, of politics have pushed people to the extremes of the left and the right. And there's not much space for someone to come through in the center. Michael Stott is the FT's Latin America editor. In the U.S., some states are incentivizing fuel refiners to produce cleaner fuels. So companies like ExxonMobil and Marathon have come up with a renewable diesel product. And they're buying so much vegetable oil to make it that prices have skyrocketed. This is not good news for companies that make things like donuts. Here's the FT's Houston correspondent, Justin Jacobs. We heard uh, from the uh, Krispy Kreme CEO recently talking about how the spike in prices for them has been, you know, really extraordinary and something that they haven't seen before. So, Justin, is it just the big guys like Krispy Kreme, which, you know, obviously use a lot of oil that are hurting? Or are there other companies, smaller companies, feeling the unintended consequences of these efforts to make lower carbon motor fuel. The head of the American Bakers Association told us that, you know, they support this push for renewable fuels broadly, and they support the green agenda, but they've seen their input prices triple. And, you know, they have members like Krispy Kreme and smaller bakers who are worried that they just might not be able to find 
uh, oil when they go out into the markets. So they're very concerned about this. And, you know, they're calling for, you know, a pause to some of these projects and some of the biodiesel mandates just to let the market react to this kind of surge in demand that they're seeing. How is the spike in soybean oil prices affecting other countries and, and their plans for biofuels? Yeah, so you do see, you know, these kind of targets for for producing biofuels in other countries. And these high prices have already forced Brazil and Argentina to reduce their biodiesel mandates. So yes, that is something we've seen. And of course, people who are growing soybean in those countries, you know, they want to sell it, you know, while, while prices are high. So yes, this is definitely having, you know, ripple effects across the global economy. And you know, this isn't the first time we've seen this food versus fuel debate. We saw it, you know, around a decade ago when corn ethanol, that industry rose very quickly. So, you know, I think we're seeing some echoes of that today. So, Justin, since we've been through this kind of thing before, is there anything that we can take away from that era and, you know, maybe apply towards what's happening now? Yeah. So I think to me, the critical issue for the oil companies going into this space is that they're just going to have to find alternative feedstocks that, that work. <laughs> because I think it's pretty clear from what we're seeing today that simply buying up the world's soybeans is not going to be a, you know, a viable, sustainable strategy for this. So I think they're going to have to find other sorts of feedstocks, other sorts of oils, recycled oils, reused oils, those sorts of things that to create these, these diesel products because, uh, you know, you can't get into a situation where you're driving up global food prices to make diesel. It's not just not a sustainable strategy for them. Justin Jacobs is the FT's Houston correspondent. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. The social media app Parler returned to the Apple App Store this past spring. Parler is the right-wing app that the big app stores banned after Donald Trump's supporters attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Parler now has a new CEO. He helped to negotiate its return to the App Store. Here he is on Fox News earlier this summer. We are the first line of defense um, when it comes to when it comes to free speech. That is George Farmer. He's 31 years old and an Oxford graduate. He worked at a hedge fund owned by his father, and he was involved in UK right-wing politics before making his way across the Atlantic to lead Parler. And he knows very well the influential pro-Trump activist Candace Owens. And introduce you guys to my fiancé, future husband, George Farmer. Welcome to the Candace Owens Show. Hi, babe. (laughs) Our tech correspondent, Hannah Murphy, recently interviewed George Farmer and talks about his connection with Owens. They met at an event in London and then got engaged after two and a half weeks. And I think he, through her, met some of these circles. Hannah says Farmer's plan is to grow Parler's user base, but he's facing more competition these days. So it's it's a space that's really growing, these sort of conservative, smaller, free speech apps. You've historically had Gab parlor and more recently a few new entrants so getter that's g-e-t-t-r that was set up by a former trump advisor and then we've also had rumble which is a sort of youtube clone that is also coming to the fore and that i believe has gotten some traction you can read more about hannah's interview with parlor ceo george farmer and the rest of the stories you heard today at ft.com this has been your daily ft news briefing make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news Stephen nathan joins us uh, as per usual on a tuesday Stephen, good to be talking with you on a day when we got uh, well some pretty controversial stuff happening at the moment pit muton open letter to say that he thinks that people who don't get vaccinated should not be allowed admission to parks, uh, restaurants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What's your take on all of this? Uh, well, Eric, we know that uh, vaccines are a very hot topic and very, very strong opinions. Um, personally, I tend to side with Pitt. Uh, I think that uh, you know the data shows us that uh, if you if you are vaccinated. The, the probability that you're going to be hospitalized, uh, have, you know, need uh, ventilators, uh, you know, uh, drops dramatically. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know if you saw there was something with uh, going around from Grotesque, where on the 6th of September, 
they said that 156 people have been hospitalized with uh, with COVID. Of 156, three were vaccinated, 153 were unvaccinated. They had 66 in high care, all 66 were unvaccinated, and 32 on ventilators, and all 32 were, un, uh, were unvaccinated. So, you know, it, it seems unequivocal, the data we're getting from Discovery, from the UK, from Israel, from, from all over the world, that, that vaccines uh, dramatically reduce the risk of, 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 of severe illness in this. And, and, you know, we know there are various ways with herd immunity, other ways to address it, but, you know, vaccine seems to, to work. And even, even if you look, uh, I think it was the IMF where they looked at forecasts for, um, for economic growth and they basically said, the countries that are recovering the fastest are those that are vaccinated. So the higher your vaccine rate, the more your, your, your economy, uh, the better your economy does, the more you can open up, the more we can get back to normalization of sport, of theater, of arts and culture. Uh, so, you know, it does seem, uh, uh, um, unequivocal. Yes, there are always risks with vaccine. Um, but I think, and I'm not an expert here, but it seems to be a very, very small risk. Uh, it does seem to be, uh, overblown. It's a bit like, I guess, a plane crash. You know, if a plane goes down, there's an enormous amount of news and we all worry whether flying is safe, but, you know, it's the exception, not the norm. Um, so, so I would, you know, so I would tend to agree with that because, uh, the, 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 um, the less vaccinated South Africa is as a country, it's just going to be difficult for us to get back to normal. Our borders aren't going to open. We're going to remain on the red list of countries. It's going to impact tourism. You know, there's so many knock on impacts. Uh, so, so, so. As I say, I know it's incredibly emotional, and I think people have very, very strong views one way or the other. But uh, from what I saw, Pitt's letter, uh, I would, I would support that. Is he right, though, as a business executive, to be making those statements? And I, I guess the question is, uh, does he have a mandate to start prescribing to other people in society? Uh, well, no, I mean, you certainly doesn't have a mandate. So there's, 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 there's no formal mandate. Um, uh, I guess, I, you know, it's, it's always how far do you want to take these things? I think I'm pretty certain, uh, Alec, that Pitt also had an open letter to the president Ramaphosa, uh, you know, talking about, uh, you know, you know, uh, the need for vaccinations and the need to, you know, uh, uh improve governance, uh, uh, you know, within the ANC. Uh, service delivery so that, so that, you know, uh, uh, it would be better for business and better for employment and job creation uh, and prosperity in South Africa. You know, one can argue, does he have a, or does any uh, CEO of a business have a mandate for that? Not specifically, but, you know, indirectly, uh, it does impact their business. So indirectly, you know, uh, you could say they have some kind of a mandate. Uh, and, and what tends to, you know, um, uh, for better or worse, you know, uh, uh, senior business people, business personalities, uh, but not only them, it would be sports, you know, sports people, uh, 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 you know, uh, high profile entertainers, uh, you know, um, they have a public platform because the media is going to broadcast what they're going to say. Uh, and, and, you know, and I think he's taking, you know, advantage of that. Um, and, uh, as I say, I, I personally tend to agree with him. Um, but there's no specific mandate. I think it's more, I would say it's more courage, uh, you know, at least having a view and not sitting on the fence. Um, but as I say, I think, I think, I think others would disagree. So it certainly it's controversial, but you know, someone who stands up for their principles and what they believe in and is willing to go out on a limb, uh, I think is, um, I think is, uh, uh, is that more, more courageous and more interesting than saying nothing or saying something that's bland and generic that we don't know what you're talking about. So I'm, I quite, you know, I, I prefer companies to take a view and people to take a view rather than sit on the fence and say nothing. Well, that is something that in South Africa we've been complaining about forever, that the companies don't say anything, that you would get very rare examples. Uh, Asipo Pajana, for instance, when he was at Angler Gold Ashanti, standing up and, and being counted during the Zoom. Royal Corsa was another yeah, one. I think Royal Corsa was another one who was um, – but you're right, you know, because the repercussions, you know, of going against government. And I must say the corporate uh, – uh, uh, sector has been much more vocal in the last few years because there was almost a period, if you remember way back when was it, where I think it was FNB when they said something about crime. If you remember that, you know, they took a stand against crime and they were lambasted by the government. And, you know, that kind of kept the corporate sector quiet for a long time, but I'm glad they've got their voice back. 
Paul Harris uh, took an awful beating. And it wasn't long after that that he said he'd had enough and he stepped down as chief executive. Well, uh, also in the news today uh, is Pepco and the shares that are owned or some of the shares that are owned there by Steinhoff. So Steinhoff is now preparing for its settlement offer, which may or may not happen depending on the back in court today on the liquidation of Steinhoff uh, or the attempt to liquidate Steinhoff by the Techie Town uh, vendors. But uh, they are selling. Uh, those Pepco shares through uh, investment banks. You're going to make a lot of money out of uh, out of the transaction. I guess uh, if you want to buy Pepco shares, here's an opportunity. But the the share price quickly reacted to the 10% uh, discount at which the stock was being placed. Yes, Steinhoff. Uh, you know, if you look at Steinhoff, uh, Pep Pepco is one of their best assets. You know, so they did a lot of things wrong and a lot of things off the books that they shouldn't have done. Um, you know, but they were very fortunate that they have, that they have, uh, uh, PEP. I own about 68% of PEP. And, you know, that, you know, what's interesting is you look at PEP core, their market capitalization is about 54 billion rand. And, and, uh, uh, sorry, it's, 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 it's 80 billion rand. Uh, um, what PEP core owns is, is, their stake is worth about 54 billion rand because uh, they own 68% of that. Steinhoff's whole market capitalization is just over 12 billion. So, so although they own a big stake of, of, of that, uh, and that just shows you the enormous debt that uh, Steinhoff has. Steinhoff has debt of about 160 billion and they've got this litigation as well. Um, and that's the problem they've got. So they've got to sell off the crown jewels. They've got to sell off the good performing businesses. And, 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 and what happens, unfortunately, what happens is when you sell a reasonably what we call a large minority stake. So 10% is a big stake, but it's not big enough to trigger control. So you're not going to, if you sell control over 50%, you can get a premium to the market price. But when you sell a minority stake, you get a discount. So you actually suffer. And and as you say, what they tend to do is they call a, a effectively the investment banks will go to the large uh, asset managers and they will look to place those shares and they'll place them at a discount to the market price. So kind of what's happening now is the market saying, okay, uh, it's going to be a Pepco shares placed, quite a lot of them, 10% of the company shares. They're going to do it. Normally they do these things in about a, it depends on the demand for the share, but uh, there was one recently, I think it was, it's sort of like 3-4%. Uh, and even that's quite generous as a discount, but you know, uh, Pep is down, I think, 9% today. Uh, so that's quite large, but it's really just the overhang. And I'm sure that once uh, once that stock is placed, the share will correct. But unfortunately, here's the unfortunate part, Alec, is, you know, uh, you're not going to be offered shares if you are an individual investor. It's only the large asset manager. So there is a sort of a, a preferential treatment going on over here. But if you wanted to buy into Pepcor, you can get it 9% cheaper, or virtually 10% cheaper than uh, than you could have got it yesterday. Stephen, uh, the, the other story I wanted to just touch on with you is the the attempts to get South Africa off the red list in the UK uh, which now seem to be gathering momentum with business leadership South Africa, getting involved with David Frost, who's been uh, beating the drum over there in England, trying to get uh, British tourists to come back out to this country. It was interesting this morning that the uh, the UK press uh, reported that England or the UK has done away with vaccine passports. It was a very strong idea and proposal, which they've now discarded completely. It's almost like they, they're getting closer to normality much more rapidly than other countries. But I guess as long as South Africa is on the red list, that normality is not going to apply to anybody from this country who wants to go there. Yes, you know, we spoke about, you know, vaccines and, and the UK. Uh, I mean, you probably know the number, but it's over 70% of the adult population has now been vaccinated. Um, and, you know, and because of that, they were able to open the economy, where was it, about August? They were able 19th, to open 19th of July. July. So they were actually, they were actually able to, which is very interesting, you know, they were, they were, they were opening their economy as, as infection rates were increasing quite dramatically. But, but because the population, uh, the majority had been vaccinated, they were confident to do that in the knowledge that, that, uh, um, it was, it was highly unlikely that people, large numbers would need hospitalization and highly unlikely that there would be, uh, large deaths following that. And, and, and that proved to be true. So, you know, when we watch uh, the football over there and the cricket, uh, and even the theater, uh, you know, it's back to normal. Um, and that's another reason why it's important, I believe, for South Africa to get, uh, vaccinated. 
uh, increase our vaccination rates because, you know, when, when the UK government sees uh, that we have very low uh, rates of infection, you know, they obviously perceive it's, 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 it's a risk not worth taking for them. Uh, and, and, you know, as a consequence, uh, you know, tourism, which is incredibly important in South Africa. I mean, tourism, just to give you some numbers, uh, it's, it's direct impact to GDP is about 130, 140 billion. Um, but it's much more the sort of indirect impact. So tourism in South Africa, uh, employs about four and a half percent of the total population. But when you include travel, as an example, you get to nine percent. And then you, if you then increase, you know, restaurants and everyone who benefits, you know, it's well into the, um, you know, probably, you know, 15 percent of GDP. So, so it's really critical that we get that done. How does business empower our nation by bringing produce to our tables? giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Pete Mouton has joined us. Uh, Stephen Nathan is our co-host on a Tuesday evening, and he's just been uh, saying how much he enjoyed your open letter, and he felt that uh, you had uh, said what business leaders don't do often enough, and that's actually come out and, and taken a, a stand. But I'm sure you must have thought about this long and hard, given the controversy about opening up the economy or having vaccine mandates, et cetera. What was your thought process, Pete, before you, you penned that open letter? Well, it obviously started with the discussion we had at the, the Kiro um, board meeting where they decided to do the principle of mandatory vaccination for the employees working at the office. And then... And obviously, we all have these discussion with our colleagues and our friends at home. But if you actually choose, and there's some people with some wild ideas about uh, on the anti-vax side, but they don't give a solution to how we get to open up the economy again. Because as I see it, it's fairly simple. The moment the hospitals are too full, um, our president and the government has no choice but to implement stricter lockdown levels because we can't have a medical or healthcare system that's being overrun and people dying on the streets and don't have access to hospitalization. And we've been sent the vaccines. We've got vaccine access for everybody. I mean, nobody wants to be randomly injected with anything that comes um, um, at you. But this seems to be a solution. You know, I look at um, sport overseas and, you know, people are at the games and watching. And I understand from my colleagues that are abroad um, that life has returned to normal. So this is a great solution. And I get a million people have lost their jobs. How do we get the system going again? What's the alternative? So if you start from that base... And that no anti-vaxxer can give me that answer as to what is the alternative to get the country going again. It seems to me that you're also using the economic principles of incentives. So, in other words, you haven't, if you haven't been vaccinated, you shouldn't be allowed to go to a restaurant. You shouldn't be allowed to go to public places, etc. And in, in business, this is a, a, a well-accepted philosophy. Incentivize people and they will do it. Um, but rather than forcing the issue as some other companies are doing, where they are, they, although I guess uh, Curo is forcing the issue, isn't it? I mean, there's going to be a long, hard debate about that, uh, that part as well. Um, I, I can tell you I've received some um, very interesting emails and WhatsApp this morning on the stance I've taken and, uh, but the problem is there should be consequences to your decision. I, I, I fully accept that some people will never want to vaccinate, but there must be a consequence. I, because of their decision, I want to be, I don't want to have any restrictions, but their decision makes that I'm being restricted. So I'm saying if it's 
If you don't want to be vaccinated, you must live with those decisions. I have been vaccinated. I want to continue with life as normal as possible. Now, it's an interesting debate that was at, at Kiro because parents have started telling us that they don't want to send their kids to the school if the educators aren't vaccinated. So it has to do with the safety of your clients. I think we do have a responsibility um, to protect our clients. If you're providing a service with them in an interactive basis, um, you must make sure that um, you create a safe working environment for them. And it's a little bit more. Um, now, I don't know how they test it, so, uh, and I am not a doctor, but they say you are more likely to transmit the disease if you are unvaccinated. I don't know how they test it. Um, but if I'm working then with somebody who's unvaccinated, the chance of them exposing me to the disease is also higher. So they are exposing me as well. So it's your colleagues that you need to protect as well. And there's a second part, this at work home thing um, is going to cause companies problems over the medium terms. Because I don't know how many CEOs and people I've talked to, you don't get that natural interaction with people being at the office together where you have a conversation and then you drift a little bit and then you come back and somebody sparks a new idea. So everybody's still running on their short-term plans, which they could have executed with the stay-at-home uh, philosophy. But coming up with the new ideas on sort of the medium to longer term, that's companies are going to start losing out because of the lack of interaction. It's a couple of very good points. Stephen Nathan has got a question for you, Pitt. Do you? Uh, well, it's more so, not, not so much for PET, but, uh, you know, Alec, um, it was interesting uh, when both Discovery and Sunlum, you know, two very prominent high-profile companies, large companies, you know, said they got, they're going to mandate uh, their employees to get vaccinated. You know, now, clearly, those companies have done a lot of homework and they've looked at the law. Uh, and I, what I thought was interesting is they said they are, uh, or they inferred that they are compelled to do that because the law requires them to do that. So we have safety and occupational acts. As, a, as an employer, you have to abide by safety and occupational act to make sure it's a safe environment for your employees. And they also said from a labor law perspective. So I think that's very interesting because it's kind of, uh, it's, it's a little bit what Pete is saying, you know, how do we make sure that our, uh, you know, that our teachers are safe? How do we make sure that the pupils are safe? Um, you know, and you do have, you do have that kind of an obligation. Uh, and just one other thought is, you know, when I've heard, People say, um, you know, how can you force me to get vaccinated? You know, it's unconstitutional. Well, we're forced to, the, to, to do a lot of things as citizens. We're forced to pay tax. We're forced to have a passport. We're forced to have a driver's license. Uh, we're forced to have um, a, uh, a visa if we want to go and travel. Um, so, you know, um, you know, those, those, those are my thoughts. But as I say, I, I, you know, well done, Pitt, because I think that, uh, you know, it is, it is, it, it is a brave and bold move, but, but I do think it's a move. Uh, as you said, what's the alternative? You know, how do we get back to, uh, you know, bringing back employment, uh, uh, and, and, and just bringing back, you know, some joy into our society? Uh, you know, if there's an alternative way, we'd like to hear it. But if there isn't, this does seem to be the best one. Well, Matthew Kruger from the Helen Sussman Foundation uh, disagrees violently with you uh, on the on the constitutional law basis, and uh, he's got support as well. He says that you can't force people to have a vaccine according to our constitution. So clearly, Discovery's lawyers and, and the HSF lawyers are going to be having thing, a lot of a lot of time. Yeah, you know that's the thing with law is you know it's the interpretation thereof, uh, and and you know and is it ever going to get tested? Um, you know, but, but, but there definitely is a basis for, you know, for what Discovery and Sunland were doing. And as I say, you know, you know, they would have taken a strong legal advice, but not to say that there isn't another side to it and there aren't people that are going to contest it. But I think the big thing, as Peter said, is, you know, what is the alternative? How, you know, what other, uh, uh solutions are there to get us back to normal? Yeah. There's a, there's another part to all of this. And Peter, I'd love to get your thought on this. I heard, over the weekend about, uh, I was playing golf with a couple of guys in their thirties and they said a good friend of theirs had died after having a vaccine. This is the second time that I've heard 
of this happening. And it isn't just, you know, somebody putting it, posting it on social media, but it, it is people that I know and, and, and trust. What happens if, say, at Cura, you mandate vaccinations and somebody dies? Uh, it's, it's rare, but it could happen. What, what then as a, as a board or as a leadership team, um, are you exposing the company to? Oh, that's obviously a difficult question. I, I, I mean, the, on, a, on a worldwide basis, um, that's a very low percentage of people um, that do find complications with with the vaccines. And as with all things, and I did write it in my letter as well, if you got uh, very specific comorbidity reasons why you don't want to take the um, the vaccine, then obviously that needs to be discussed. And if you feel you're threatened because of the research, say it's something very specific, um, like you, you you have been exposed to aneurysms, then I think that's a fair point you can say, and we will allow you to remain in the employ. But I, I think with all these companies um, like Kiro and Discovery, it, it will be a consultation process to understand the person's viewpoint on not wanting to be um, vaccinated. But any death um, is very sad. I, I, I mean, we've lost so many, so many, I, I, I don't have the figure in front of me, um, uh, headmasters and teachers, and that's also very sad. And parents of of children, so that's also sad. So now, are we going to say because one out of a thousand gets a problem, uh, but um, the other nine hundred and ninety nine who died from COVID, where do you draw the line? I don't really want to go into that debate because I don't truly have an answer on that side. I I, I just think. If you look at the statistics all over the world, it's it's a very small minority who picked up complications. Such a controversial field. And, of course, we've got NIASA, an employers association, who's saying exactly the opposite. They're saying that uh, that all employers should give their employees the choice. But, Pitt, I think more than anything else, really, the, the fact that you stood up and you've actually put your position out there is the one that is that it has been sorely lacking from business leadership. Uh, for decades now. I know you, you guys at PSG, you and, and your dad before you have not shirked from your responsibilities in this regard. But do you feel that it's time now for other business leaders to state their case? I do firmly believe so. Um, I think last year we also came out and said that um, with our results that um, it's going to cause severe damage to the lockdowns, and we already referred to vaccines. Now we've got the vaccine, so uh, we can stop the lockdowns in, in their totality. Um, you know, in my mind, there's no doubt that the, um, the looting and the anarchy we saw in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng was as a result of a very fragile economy at the moment. People are hungry and desperate, and they've got no hope to to get a job. And I, I think the country's sitting on a powder keg, mm-hmm. that's the word. It would be great if a number of other CEOs would join the argument, but I suppose everybody's got their own constituents to think about. I, I, I do believe you sit on the right side and more people would be pro the stance uh, one's taking, but let's see if other people are going to follow suit. I mean, we've had three big companies coming out now and saying similar, making similar noises. So let's hope it gets a bit of traction. So let me just understand: Are you saying throughout the PSG group, and that I suppose on a on a on a greater family would include Capitec Bank, you would be arguing for all employees to be vaccinated? Yes. I would also um, take up the argument and which I fully intend to do with government because I think government, um, President Ramaphosa pleaded with the the, um, the nation um, to get vaccinated, but it's a plead at the end of the day. Uh, I think if they want to show 
full leadership, they must take the stance that all government employees, municipal workers, um, and SOEs should get, because they should lead by example. If this is what government fully believes needs to be done, they should act as the leader. And you then would say universal, in other words, everybody, not just the vulnerable uh, age groups and vulnerable people. Yes, because I believe that that, that uh, it, it stops um, a big part of the spread of the disease. I mean, at some stage, you've got to start drawing the line. I, I, you know, um, some of these places in Europe have started vaccinating very young children, um, where it's been proven that they are not big carriers of the disease. So um, I think there's still open debate on, on that part of it. But um, I saw an interesting thing. You cannot go to the matric rage in Plettenberg Bay if you haven't got a vac- if you haven't been vaccinated. So there's a little bit of incentive for the 18-year-olds. Uh, incent- incentivization. I suppose the the uh, the argument will continue. There will be those who say they want their freedom of choice, but the incentivization of people to be vaccinated is a very powerful force. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether a other business leaders do follow you or go with a Niaza approach, which is uh, there there should be freedom of of choice on this, or or b. Uh, whether it all lands up in the constitutional court and then the courts in our lands make those decisions. But, Peter, it's been good talking with you. Just one final question from you, Stephen. How's it going looking for your next big thing? Are you seeing, as you said, it's, 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 difficult, um, it's difficult for companies to come up with new ideas because we're all kind of working remotely. You know, how's that sort of impacting your sort of investment opportunities? Uh, are you seeing interesting things out there or would you say that, you know, it's a good or bad time to be looking for new opportunities. Well, it's, I, I firmly believe it's a, it, it remains an interesting time to look for new things. I, I think what we're experiencing at the moment is um, because movement keeps on being restricted, it makes things like due diligence is very difficult. Um, and just to fully understand how it's going to play out, if if we go for an a scenario where we know we're going to return to normality um, and which will most probably mean a big uptick in the, or hopefully an uptick in the economy. One would be able to move with a lot more um, certainty at the end of the day. There's a addition, it feels a little bit like there's a, you know, the, the markets have recovered and the, on the ground, it's still lagging a little bit, but I'm still hopeful it 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 will turn um, at the end of the day. So let's hope so. I'm, I mean, I actually saw an interesting WhatsApp this morning on a, a reply, and it was lot aligned with your statement, um, um, Stephen, on. There is, there are curbs on our freedom of choice, and it was a, a professor that answered something to a student journalist in the Ottawa, Ottawa campus. On and the student asked whether it's an infringement on the rights of free movement, and the professor answered him as follows: "We already infringe on your movements. You can't cross the border without the passport. You can't drive a car without the license." You can't ride the bus without the pass. You can't cross the bloody street unless the light is green. You can't enter a nightclub unless your ID says you're over 18. You can't enter private property and the university is private property unless the owners give you permission. Moreover, you can't inject heroin into your veins because that's against the public good. You can't drive your car as fast as you want because that's against public good. You can't defecate on the sidewalk because that's against public good. And you can't come to the campus without being vaccinated because that's against the public good. A free society is not 
uh, anarchic society. If you don't want to be vaccinated, you have the freedom not to come to the campus. And I think he actually put that quite well. Matthew Kruger joins us now uh, from the Helen Sussman Foundation. What drew you to this whole subject of mandatory vaccinations? Well, I think just to start one one point of clarity, I'm a research fellow at the Helen Sussman Foundation, so I don't I don't speak for them. Uh, the HSF is the sort of organisation that allows uh, fellows to to speak quite freely, even though it doesn't speak on behalf of the body. What is a research fellow? It it is. So I previously was employed as a as a legal researcher for the HSF, but I've I've since uh, gone on my gone on my own way, and uh, I was then invited to be a research fellow. And so your, your fellows just occasionally contribute uh, thought pieces or briefs uh, on often uh, current issues. And what attracted me to this, to get to your question, I suppose, it's I've, I've written a number of pieces actually about uh, COVID and the state's response to it almost since the beginning, uh, since uh, the beginning of April last year. And I haven't really uh, written much about it since since, since early March, I think, since the anniversary uh, of lockdown. Uh, and what drew me to this issue, I think, was uh, what strikes me as just a continuation of what has been happening since the beginning. We are an extremely politically and ideologically, ideologically diverse uh, country. But what, I, what has struck me throughout is the almost uniformity of response by individuals, by corporates, by NGOs, by media, by political parties. There's been a near uniform response, uh, a kind of party line, so to speak, that has been followed. And I've made various, uh, written various pieces about that since the beginning. And what struck me about this is that it seems to me to be taking a bit, an especially dangerous form uh, with the, the mandatory vaccines. And it's not so much the, the, man, man, the mandate itself or the proposed mandate itself. Like, let me make that clear. We can discuss the substance of, of that sort of decision. Uh, but rather what the piece that I wrote is concerned with is what I, strikes me as the, the, the framework through which we're considering this question. And I find that extremely, extremely worrying for a number of respects that I canvass in that piece. Is it likely that if vaccines are made mandatory that the hsf would go to court over it well i i i cannot i cannot speak to that uh one because i'm not uh, part of their internal structures but two it would probably be inappropriate for me to do so at this stage even if but, i knew the answer but would somebody be able to approach the constitutional court to actually defend against it uh it it, it would be a a, a triable case uh, whether anyone would have the motivation or the, the or, or would move to do so is a separate question I've previously written about uh, what strikes me as or what, I've, what I term the silence of the constitutionalists, is that for 18 months we've had democratic power exercised by way of family meetings about which were informed 20 or 4 hours before the event, rather than having these really compli- complicated issues debated in Parliament. Yet all our, yet our vaunted civil society has almost uh, turned a blind eye to all of this, and this, this whether they would engage on this issue, I'm not sure. So if we want a constitution, we have to take the responsibility of having one. Yes, and we've had a we've had an our civil society and our NGOs have done extraordinary work in the last 25 years, and they've also done extraordinary work when it comes to dealing with some of the the societal and economic and uh, healthcare and educational implications of COVID policy. But when it comes to the constitution itself. There's been an extraordinarily distressing silence. And the Constitution is just a document. It's just a piece of paper. Without people willing to defend it, it means nothing. And we've had 18 months of what strikes me as uh, constitutional silence. And I find it extremely disappointing. Why? Why would there be silence on this issue? That's a really complicated question that I don't really have the answer to. I, I think there's a number of number of factors that you might attribute it towards. Uh, one is it a lack of courage? Is it a lack of courage for by people standing up and saying, well, yes, it might be unpopular, but this is, this is what the reality is? I don't think it's a lack of courage. I think it's a different necessarily for some people perhaps. But we have a lot of very impressive and hardworking and 
noble NGOs who focus on different issues. If your focus is on healthcare, if, if your focus is on children dying in open pit toilets, that, that takes up a lot of time. Um, if your focus is on refugees who have been attacked or have been kicked out of homeless shelters because of lockdown regulations, that takes up a lot of time. Um, we, there, are not, there are some organizations who focus explicitly on constitutional questions, HSF being one of them. But perhaps what we, the last 18 months has revealed is that there's space for more. Uh, there's, a, there's space for organizations to exist in, in tandem with and uh, by the side of those other more socioeconomic focused organizations. Uh, but it's not enough just to do work that strives to alleviate suffering, that tr- strives to promote socioeconomic goods. Those also have to take place within a larger constitutional framework that has a parliament, that has parliament, that has the judiciary, and that has the executive. In very simple terms, there needs to be adherence to separation of powers and the rule of law. Uh, and that's th- under the guise of emergency for 18 months. And this is not, of course, unique to South Africa. It's happened almost everywhere. Uh, a sustained and, I worry, permanent shift of legislative power from your parliamentary side of your democracy to your executive side of the democracy. So what, what would your message be to Adrian Gore and Pitt Mouton? What are they missing in the approach that they're taking? Our corporates and our companies know how to lobby government. Perhaps they should encourage government to take the lead. Uh, Mr. Gore, in his, in his open letter, spoke about leading bravely. And while that's admirable, uh, what we need is parliament to lead. Not, not the president, not the cabinet, parliament. We need Parliament to take the lead on this question, and not just on the question of mandatory vaccines. The, uh, the pandemic is not going away. There will be new viruses. We cannot operate under the Disaster Management Act indefinitely. We need legislation that is fit for purpose. We need legislation in much the same way as we have equality legislation, that we have environmental legislation, that we have domestic violence legislation. We need pandemic legislation. We cannot continue to operate under... Uh, the Disaster Management Act, and executive rule via family meeting. This question is only coming up because Parliament has failed in its duty to design a legislative framework that can deal with these questions. So by having these open letters and and supporting uh, mandatory vaccines, in essence, the corporates are giving the presidency the ability to – or. Uh, to, to continue in the current vein and um, allowing a Parliament to abdicate its responsibility. Am I yes, hearing I you right? Think, I don't. I'm not. I'm not suggesting there's any deliberateness on that part. Uh, who knows what goes on behind the scenes? What I'm suggesting is that is that that's the effect of what it's doing, and that it's not just companies who are doing this. It's everyone who's doing this. Everyone who says, well, what choice do we have because this is a crisis? Well, we always have a choice. That's precisely what it means to live in a constitutional democracy. And that choice has to be exercised through the appropriate structures, which is parliament. Yes, perhaps in the first three weeks, three months, six months, the newness of the virus and the originality of the virus, its novel character, justified drawing on the extraordinary powers under the Disaster Management Act. But what has Parliament been doing for the last 18 months to design legislation that's fit for purpose? Why, why hasn't it addressed these questions? These weren't, un, these weren't unforeseeable issues. We're constantly told that mandatory vaccines have a long and proud history. Well, if that's the case, why hasn't Parliament addressed this issue already? Why, why are we outsourcing what is an extraordinary power? Because the effect of the power is to es- essentially give in many respects, not all of the, not all companies will be like this, but in the case of Discovery and Sunlam, are near monopoly type entities, the power to determine the fate of their employees. You can be pro-business, you can be pro-market, you can be pro-all of that, and still recognize that there's a deep, deep concern about empowering uh, uh, corporates in this way. And perhaps it should be done. But perhaps that's, but in my view, that's something that should be decided through a transparent and open and public debate in Parliament, not simply through outsourcing uh, through through executive fiat.
Well, thanks for being with us this uh, Tuesday. We'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.